This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 20, Daniel, Stories and Visions. In this lecture, we're going to look at the material found in Daniel chapter 1 through chapter 12. And if you take a look at the outline, we're on Roman numeral 1, the orientation to the material, A, the basic content. So looking at figure 21, basically what we have seen even in our previous lecture is that the book of Daniel may be divided into chapters 1 through 6 and 7 through 12. Both of these sections of the book have Hebrew material as well as Aramaic material. You need to be aware of that, that this is one of the parts of the Old Testament and, uh, along with the book of Ezra that has a significant section in Aramaic. But the first six chapters focus on the stories of royal service by Daniel and his company up to the time of Cyrus' reign. And the focus of this uh, material is that others have visions, that is, the kings have visions, and Daniel interprets their visions. Then in chapters 7 through 12, we have visions of the future by Daniel during Cyrus, and remember that Cyrus is called Darius in this book, during Cyrus' reign. And the focus of this, by contrast with the first six chapters, is that Daniel himself has visions of his own, and he interprets them for the reader. Now, there are interconnections, Roman number one, letter B, between the stories in the first six chapter and the visions that follow, and a number of logical interconnections could be argued in this regard. First, let me suggest to you that the accounts of Daniel and his friends demonstrate the piety of Daniel and his company. Uh, and this, of course, would raise the issue for the visions of the spiritual integrity of Daniel. Then the accounts also demonstrate the reliability of Daniel's predictions. You remember that many of the uh, events that were predicted by Daniel in these first six chapters had already taken place by the time that the writing of this book occurred in after the year 537. And of course the purpose of these accounts demonstrating Daniel's reliability was to demonstrate the reliability of his other predictions that are given in chapters 7 through 12. And then finally, the story of Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue in chapter 2 gives a background to Daniel's own visions and gives an orientation toward the historical progress that Daniel himself saw. Now what we need to do at this point then is understanding this basic content and the interconnections between the two major sections of the book of Daniel, we need to strike out and go ahead to Roman numeral 2, a quick look at Daniel's stories, that is the stories about Daniel. Letter A, and a historical orientation. The book of Daniel gives us historical dates for the various events that take place in the first six chapters. You'll take a look at Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. We read these words, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this of course is speaking of Nebuchadnezzar's first deportation in 605. Chapter 2, verse 1, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and this would be speaking of 604. Um, chapter 3, verse 1, gives dates. Chapter 4, verse 1, gives dates, and 530, and then um, 628 give dates. 
dealing with the various sections and various periods of time. So we have a sometimes rather specific and certainly a general orientation to the various events that are taken, taking place here. There is a clear historical orientation to the various stories about Daniel and his company in the first six chapters. But there is also a literary structure that we need to keep in mind, Roman numeral 2, letter B. Looking at figure 20.4, I think it's helpful to divide chapters 1 through 6 into two main sections. First, the activities of Daniel and his company during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And then the second major section of this material um, in chapters 5 through 6, speaking of the activities of Daniel alone, in other words, his company, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and others are not mentioned in these chapters, and these would be the activities of Daniel alone during later reigns, meaning Belshazzar and Darius or Cyrus. And so we have Nebuchadnezzar's training of Daniel and his company, the dream of the statue, the golden idol, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the tree, and then we find in the second major section here, Belshazzar's banquet and Cyrus's den of lions. And so these are the um, basic literary structures that we find in this material. Now when we ask the question, what are we um, going to find to be the main ideas or the prominent motifs in these chapters, chapters 1 through 6, it will help us to note that these stories often repeat the very same themes. What you discover in, is that a number of different items occur in all or most of the chapters 1 through 6 and the various stories that are there. Figure 20.5 gives an illustration of these kinds of parallels between the various stories. One parallel is that the king initiates the action of each story, that is the pagan king, either the Babylonian king or the kings of uh, Persia. The first thing we find is that the kings initiate the action in these various stories, either Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Darius or Cyrus. In his, very, in his chapter 6 story. Um, the king initiates the action asking for someone to deal with his, um, his dreams or his visions or his revelations. Then you find uh, opposing officials being mentioned and of course the next big uh, item that comes in most of these and all of these stories is that the officials of the Babylonian and then the Persian kingdom fail to accomplish the goal or fail to accomplish the request of the king. And then the piety of Daniel and his company are is emphasized in each one of the various chapters. And not just their piety, but their success. Their success in interpreting the dreams or their success in resisting the, um, the threat of death in the case of the golden idol, the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And then finally, the exaltation of Daniel and his company take place. Now we have to ask ourselves why these various themes would be um, given over and over again in these stories, and I think the reason is is because they alert us to the specific concern of these episodes. Figure 20.6 gives us an idea of what the main ideas or the main concerns of these chap various chapters are. The, in the first chapter, 
Daniel and his company are exalted because they remain undefiled. Do you remember the story and how they refused to eat the, um, the food given to them by royal provision? They had a partial fast, refusing to eat the luxurious food. And they are exalted because they remain undefiled by the food apparently that had been offered to the idols and were given in service to the various gods of the Babylonians. Chapter 2, Daniel and his company uh, are exalted because God gives revelation to Daniel. This is the dream sequence and Daniel's uh, ability to know and interpret the dream set him apart from all the false wise men of the Babylonian court and so he's exalted for that reason. Chapter 3, the company of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are exalted because they are devoted to Yahweh alone even under a threat. In other words, they were not willing to worship the golden idol even though it meant losing their lives, but God exalted them because of their devotion. Then chapter 4, Daniel's interpretation became true and he honors Yahweh by his devotion. Recall in chapter 4, verse 27, Daniel strikes out against the king and speaks rather boldly um, as the instrument of God's revelation where he says, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then your prosperity will continue. So we see then in chapter 4 that Daniel's interpretation came true and he honors Yahweh by his devotion. But then chapter 5, we find the story of the handwriting on the wall and the interpretation that's given by that. And Daniel in this chapter is exalted because God gives revelation through him and it comes true. Then finally in chapter 6, verses 1 through 28, that Daniel is exalted because he's devoted to Yahweh alone even under the threat of his own life in the den of lions where he refuses to stop praying to Yahweh. So these chapters all focus on the exaltation of Daniel and his devotion to Yahweh. And what would be the purpose then of these stories? Um, figure 20.7, the original meaning. Um, the idea here is that Daniel's readers from the first, second, and final deportations had questions in all likelihood that were being answered by these stories. They would ask questions, for example, like, well, doesn't your political status, Daniel, show that, that you're a compromiser? And, of course, this would be a, a key issue because Daniel did rise to great power and influence in the nations of Babylon as well as the Persian kingdom. And I think that the reaction to uh, these issues is that, from Daniel, is that they remain firmly devoted to Yahweh in all of their actions even in their training and even under threats, they remain true to Yahweh. Then the uh, readers of this material might also be asking, why should we think that Daniel's ideas of the future are reliable? And the answer is because so many of his prophecies in these first six chapters had, be had come true. So Daniel's saying, then the third question that might be raised by original readers might be something like, why should we think that Daniel was favored by God and these stories illustrate how in many situations Daniel was rescued and his friends were rescued by God and that um, God did favor them. And so the original meaning of these first six chapters might be something, something like this, that these stories about Daniel's life establish his credibility as God's prophet and that the reader should respond positively to his prophetic visions found in the second half of this chapter, of this book. 
This brings us then to Roman numeral 3, where we're going to begin to look at the visions of Daniel in chapters 7 through 12. Many of these chapters are dated explicitly by the materials themselves. 7-1 brings us to the year 553 and 8-1 to 550. Of course, following that is the fall of Babylon. Then we have Cyrus, or Darius, as he's called in this book, um, and the chapter 9, verse 1, puts us in the year of 539, 538. And then chapter 10, verse 1, puts us after the Cyrus Edict. And so these are the historical orientations that are given to Daniel's vision. In terms of literary structure, we have the visions of four beasts and the ram and the goat. And these visions took place during the Babylonian period. And then we have visions that took place during the Persian period, the revelation of the 77s, and the vision of the heavenly messenger in chapter 10 through 12. At this point, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the visions of chapter 7 and chapter 8, and we're going to correlate them with the background that we find in chapter 2 of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Because if you recall, I mentioned earlier in, this, in the previous lecture that Daniel's experience in chapter 2, dealing with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue and the various parts of the statue, correspond to the visions that are found later in the book, specifically chapter 7 and chapter 8. You remember, in looking now at figure 2011, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 consists of a statue that has a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and then legs of iron, and then the appearance of a rock that becomes a mountain and smashes this idol. Smashes the idol, and it's after doing so, the rock expands into a mountain that fills the whole earth. This is the ba these are the basic components of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and Daniel interprets them as being various kingdoms. Now, these kingdoms, of course, are Babylon, first for the head of gold, and then the Persian, uh, Medo-Persian kingdom for the chest and arms of silver, the Greek kingdom for the belly and thighs of bronze, the Roman kingdom for the legs of iron, and then the kingdom of God for the rock that becomes the mountain. But these ba this basic program is reiterated in various ways in the vision of the four beasts in chapter 7 and the vision of the ram and goat. You'll notice that the vision of the four beasts puts its emphasis on the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of iron, chapter 7, 7 through 8, and 23 through 25. But basically you have the four beasts, the, le the lion, the bear, the leopard, and then the beast of iron, teeth, and ten horns. And so these various beasts correspond to the three or four main parts of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. And then you'll notice that at the end of chapter 7, you have a focus not on a rock that, that smashes the idol that becomes a mountain, but you have a focus on the saints of the Most High, the ancients of days, that's God the Father, and one like the Son of Man coming before God the Father, and he receives all kingdoms and all authority, and he's given this authority forever. And that's one like the Son of Man, of course, is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, 
the Son of God. And so we have the rock and the mountain that smashes the idol being the kingdom of God. And now we have the Ancient of Days establishing the kingdom of one like the Son of Man, the, um, the son, his Son, of course, one that we know as the Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth. Then you have the vision of the ram and the goat where the emphasis is on the second and the third kingdom. Um, the ram is mentioned in 8, 3, and 20 as being the Medo-Persian kingdom. The goat is mentioned as being the Greek kingdom. And then you have the prince of princes mentioned in 825, which of course would be once again the same as the son of man or the rock and the mountain. And the identifications of these, and the key passage for identifying, identifying these is chapter 8, verses 20 through 21. Let's just take a look at those verses so we're sure we understand how we can identify these various parts. 8.20, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one was broken, that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. Now, the idea here is that the critical scholars uh, will all agree, along with evangelicals, that the first head of gold, gold or the lion represents the kingdom of Babylon. But then the critical scholars and evidence to disagree with each other. Critical scholars think that um, the ram and the bear and the chest, of arm, chest and arms of silver represent simply the Persian kingdom. And then the next one, the belly of thighs of bronze and the leopard and the goat represent the kingdom of, the media, of media. And then you have the, third, the fourth part representing the Greek kingdom. And they have this orientation because they want to see the Greek kingdom as the climax of this material during the Maccabean revolt and they leave out the Roman kingdom altogether. And um, chapter 8, verses 20 through 21, identifies the ram as the kings of Media and Persia. So in Daniel's visions, there is a combination of the Medo-Persian empire. This is not two separate things, but one. And then the goat is represented as, as Greece explicitly in chapter 8, verses 20 through 21. And um, then we, of course, move on, and the next kingdom after the Greeks would be the Romans, and then the kingdom of God. And so it had this basic sequence of the visions, and the visions are that you're going to have the Babylonian kingdom, then the Medo-Persian kingdom, then the Greek, and then the Roman, and then the kingdom of God that will rise above all of these previous kingdoms. What we need to do at this point now is to walk through these various visions as we've outlined them in figure 2011 and try to summarize the teaching under each of these kingdoms. So looking at figure 20.12, we note first that the Babylonian kingdom is mentioned as the one who will be ruler over all. And yet at the same time in 7.4, Daniel predicts that there will be a humbling of the king of Babylon. Well, who will humble them? It will be the Medo-Persian kingdom. Um, it's mentioned in chapter 239 that it will be inferior to the Babylonians and that there will be these two horns, probably speaking now of the Medes and the Persians, 8-3. One side will be greater. It will fulfill desired aggressions and it will be destroyed by the next kingdom, chapter 8, verses 5-7. through seven. This next kingdom, of course, is the Greek kingdom of Alexander the Great. It will rule over the whole earth, 239. There will be a great horn from the west, chapter 8, verses 5 through 20 and 21, and that, of course, is Alexander, the great horn. 
It will conquer the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then there will be four lesser kings, or four heads and, and seven, eight, that will follow. Note 8, chapter 8, verses 8 and 22. Alexander the Great died, and there was an initial division of the Greek kingdom into um, Macedonia and Greece, um, Thrace and Asia Minor, Syria and Palestine and Egypt. And so there was a division into these four sections. And so we're probably talking about this kind of event as Daniel describes it ahead of time or prophesies it. And then another king rises, we're told, and this, and he will crush Israel, chapter 8, 9 through 12, 23 through 25, and this is probably Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, in 168 to 164. Um, then you find he will desecrate the temple, but he will be destroyed by God, and the temple will be reconsecrated. And the reconsecration of the temple is, of course, what the Jews celebrate and the great celebration of Hanukkah. Something interesting takes place in chapter 8, verses 13 through 14. Let's just read those words about this Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one say to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and, un and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. 2,300 evenings and mornings, as figure 2012 indicates, is about 1,150 days, of course approximately three years. And it's very interesting to note that Antiochus Epiphanes IV desecrated the temple in around 168 B.C. and the Maccabean reconsecration took place around 165 B.C. So it really was three years that Antiochus Epiphanes IV desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. This brings us then to the fourth kingdom, which remains unnamed in the book of Daniel, but we know it to be the Roman kingdom. The Roman kingdom, it says, will crush the previous kingdoms and cover the whole earth. It will be strong, and yet at the same time it has clay in its feet that will bring weakness to it. Ten kings arise within this kingdom. Ten horns, it says. Take a look at verse 23 of chapter 7. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are the ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, the king will arise different from the earlier ones, and he will subdue three kings. So what we have here are ten kings arising, but the big question is, are these in sequence, or can these kings be kings that will come in some other fashion, or is that is a ruling at the same time, or is, is the t number ten, in fact, being just used as a symbol of a large number of kings, or a round number, around ten kings? But it is. What we have to see here is that contrary to the dispensational view that sees the Roman kingdom as something that dies and is resurrected, this kingdom does not die. It just simply produces these kings and these ten kings reign within it. And then there's an eleventh king, an extra king, who will be different. And this extra king persecutes the uh, Israelites and disrupts the worship, chapter 7, verse 25. And according to um, Matthew 24, 22, this event is fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Roman kingdom does indeed um, violate the temple and interrupt the worship there for a short while. God will destroy one day and replace this kingdom 
with his own, 7, 23, 26, and 27. So as you think about these materials, and I know that we've only sketched a, a path through these chapters, we had to keep in mind that Daniel is talking about these four main kingdoms and what's going to happen, and that these things were events that took place prior to the coming of Christ and find their fulfillment in the coming of Christ as Christ destroys the Roman kingdom by replacing it with the kingdom of God. Now, the, as this brings us then to the second major portion of this second large section of the book of Daniel, the visions that Daniel had during the Persian period. And this relates to the revelation of the 77s in chapter 9 and then the vision of the heavenly messenger in chapters 10 through 12. So let's look at figure 2013 as we think about the famous chapter, chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, where Daniel has his vision of the 77s. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, Daniel is concerned with something. He reads the book of Jeremiah, and he's beginning to wonder what is going on. Now, we have to take a look at what Daniel says so that we can understand the, the, the answer that God gives. But let's begin by noticing that it says in verse 2, In the first year of the reign of Darius, son of Xerxes, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And in fact, Jeremiah did say that in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12. And so in many respects, he's uh, concerned with the fact that um, 70 years has nearly passed. And so in verse 3, he says, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel's wondering, isn't it about time for the restoration to take place? But, and he, he prays this way in verses 1 through 9, but in verses 13 and 14, he admits something. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. And so Daniel admits that the people of God, even though they have uh, been exiled, has still not fully repented of what they have done against the Lord. Now, this is what Daniel is concerned with. He's concerned with Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, where it's mentioned that the exile will, list, will last for 70 years. And this, of course, the chronicler tells us in 2 Chronicles 31, 22, was fulfilled in the Cyrus Edict. Um, in fact, from the first deportation in 605 to the Cyrus Edict in 538, you have about 67 years or nearly 70 years. So Daniel prays, I know we, haven't, I know we have not um, repented as we should have, but please still restore Israel to her glory, restore Jerusalem to her splendor. But God sends a response to Daniel. He, responds, he sends a response through the angel Gabriel. Chapter chapter 9 verse 23 as soon as you began to pray an answer was given which I have come to tell you for you are highly esteemed therefore consider the message and understand the vision verse 24 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression to put an end to sin to atone for wickedness to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy 77s. In other words, 
what the Gabriel says is the punishment for Judah, the exile for Judah, has been extended beyond 70 years to seven times 70 years. In other words, about 490 years. So what we see is 70 times 7 equals about 490 years. Now, isn't this God changing the rules of the game in the middle of the a stream. After all, he said through Jeremiah that the exile would last 70 years, Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. Well, God is not changing the rules. What he's doing is he's extending a pattern that he had already revealed in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 26, um, Moses establishes a covenantal arrangement that God will punish his people, but if they do not repent of their sins, then he'll punish them seven times more. And if they do not repent, then seven times more, and seven times more, and seven times more, until the time of the exile as the ultimate punishment. Now, in the days of Daniel, Judah is off in exile, and they still have not repented as they should. So what he's saying through the angel Gabriel to Daniel is that I'm invoking the principle of seven times again. And so it's not just 70 years anymore, as Jeremiah had said, but it is now 70 times seven years. And now we have to keep in mind that these 77s are, these 490 years are approximate and symbolic, but nevertheless the idea is that God is not changing the rules but simply implementing the principle of seven times the punishment at, that he had already given to them in the uh, teachings of the book of Leviticus chapter 26. Now in chapter 9 verses 25 through 27, God speaks of these 490 years and he divides them into several major events. He says first there's going to be seven times seven in chapter uh, seven, nine, verses 27 to 27, and these are probably f about 49 years, a relatively short period uh, from the Cyrus Edict until the building of the city, which took place pr in approximately 93 years during the days of Nehemiah. So you have a relatively short period. Then 62 times seven, about 434 years, a relatively long period of time between the rebuilding around 445 and the anointing, the anointed one coming around, seven, around 30 AD, which would be about 475 years. And then there's a very relatively short period of time between the resurrection and the fall of Jerusalem, which is probably the period of time that Daniel has in mind. We can't be sure exactly how all of these events divide up within the 70 years. Any attempt to analyze this in particular frameworks fails, but uh, I think we can see that there are relatively short, then long, and then a sh very short period of time that the 490 years divide into. The main point for us as Christians is that the 490 years that are dictated by God um, take place in the year 538 B.C., which brings us right to the doorstep of Jesus' life. In other words, 490 years or approximately 500 years after the time of Daniel is when Jesus came. And so we know that the fulfillment of all these prophecies, uh, the restoration of the uh, Judahites to Jerusalem, the restoration of Jerusalem, the coming of the kingdom, those wonderful things that had been prophesied by the other prophets had been postponed because of the continuing sin of the people of God seven times the 70 years Jeremiah had predicted, postponed until the coming of Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the restoration prophecies. 
This brings us then to figure 2015, which is an outline of chapters 11 through 12. And what we have here is the appearance of a man. I guess we could put it that way. And these are the prominent motifs of these two chapters. First, we have in the first two verses of chapter 10 an introduction to the material. It talks, gives the date and those sorts of things, the third year of Cyrus' reign. So we're talking about things that are going on during the Persian period. And then um, verses 3 through 9, the man appears to Daniel. Now, this expression, a man, is very, is very similar to the kind of expression that's used in the wrestling of Jacob with uh, a man at Peniel. And this is a mysterious figure purposefully put in the form of a man, meaning a person wrestled with him. And in all likelihood, what we're talking about here in Daniel as well as in Jacob is an angel, an angel who mediates between God and the recipient of divine revelation. Um, and here we have Daniel face to face with a person, a heavenly person. And then he explains that Daniel's prayers have been heard by God and that God has sent a message, but something has happened to delay that message. Let's look at verses 12 and 14. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So this angelic figure, the man, is on his way from Yahweh to Daniel with a response to Daniel's prayers of humility and lament. But along the way, the prince of Persia, as he's called, starts to delay him. That is, he begins to wrestle with him and hold him back and keep him from reaching Daniel. Now this expression, Prince of Persia, is an unusual expression for us. You can take a look at the, the cross-references here in this section, but basically the Prince of Persia is an angelic or demonic power that had been assigned rulership over the Persian kingdom. In the ancient Near East, people believed that every city and every nation had its patron deity, uh, its special gods who ruled and who represented that nation in the heavenly court. Something similar to that it was believed in ancient Israel. The Bible teaches something very similar to that. Rather than it being gods, of course, we believe that these uh, powers, these heavenly powers that rule over the nations are angels. You can look at Psalm 82, 1 through 8, and Isaiah 24, and, and the other passages here. And the idea here is that the prince of Persia was the, the, the angel, uh, the heavenly power that was associated closely with the Persian kingdom. And so as this picture tries to make clear, a messenger is sent from God, and the prince of Persia, that is the, the representative of the king of Persia, the heavenly representative, resists him for 21 days. But, verses 21 and 12-1, Michael, the great prince of heaven, assists the messenger from God. Look at, verse, look at verse 13, for example. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And so Michael, the representative of Israel, on the behalf of Daniel, comes and 
fights against the prince of Persia, and so the message is delivered to Daniel. Now, why is it that the prince of Persia does not want this message delivered? It's because the message is found in verse 20. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. And so the reason that the prince of Persia does not want this message to come through is because it has to do with the fact that the kingdom of Persia is going to fall to the Greeks. And uh, verse 20 makes it very plain then that he's resisting this message because the message given to Daniel was a message of doom for Persia. Now, while the, uh, we had the appearance of the man and the man assuring Daniel that he has been blessed by God and that God had sent a message along and that the only reason it had not reached him was because of the resistance of the prince of Persia, then in chapter 11, verses 2 through 12, 13, we have the man's or the angel's message as he spells out for Daniel what will happen in the future. He says in verse 2 that there will be four more Persian kings then the Greek Empire will come, verse 11, 3. And he goes through some amazing details of the um, Greek period and talks in terms of how many kings will go this way and that way, and I have summarized these in many different ways here in this uh, outline. The Roman Empire, the unnamed empire, will follow uh, this, and then there's a final instruction that's given to Daniel in verse 4, chapter 12, verse 4. There he says, but you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. And so Daniel is told to seal up these words and to keep them until the end of the Greek Empire so people can understand what's going on. And he gives a, a further explanation in that Daniel asks, how long? Look at verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and the other on the opposite bank. These are in Babylon. And one of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, you remember the similar expressions in the book of Ezekiel, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Meaning, when will the Greek Empire come and destroy the Persians, and when will all these wonderful things happen? And uh, the answer is, the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times and half a time. Well, that's rather obscure, isn't it? But uh, basically what it means, only a little while is what it means. And then Daniel asks a question, what will be the result? Verse 8. Uh, what will be the outcome of all this, he says, and the angel gives a response, one, that there will be a purification that takes place, that the uh, wicked will continue to be wicked, but the righteous will be made refined and purified, uh, spotless. Then there will be a defilement of the temple uh, that will happen, and then finally uh, the angel assures Daniel of his own situation, his own future, in verse 13. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at that time, at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. And so we see here a doctrine of resurrection occurring that, he's, that the angel is telling Daniel, don't worry, Daniel, you will die, yes, but um, you will also be resurrected to receive your great inheritance along with the other saints. So this is a uh, wonderful instruction that takes place here and something that is particularly significant for Daniel's own personal life. And of course, as the readers listen to this, 
they are wondering what all this means for them, and the answer to that is, is that as Daniel rested, they could rest too in the hopes of a future resurrection. This brings us to figure 2017, which is sort of a summary of this last section of the book, and Daniel is talking about the developments in the Persian, Greek, and Roman kingdoms, and the the purpose of this section is for the readers to understand as this future unfolds. And Daniel's message then is basically that when these events take place, they can then begin to understand them. Uh, until then, they should wait expectantly as they go through difficult times. The sealing up of Daniel's words and the holding on of these words until the end of time or until the end of the, of the Persian and Greek empires um, tells the purpose, in fact, of the whole book of Daniel, and that is to give hope to those who were going through the trials and troubles that, is, that were revealed to Daniel would come before the final establishment of the kingdom. And as we know, the Jewish nation did go through much trouble after the time of Daniel. They suffered under the Greeks, and then they suffered under the Romans, and of course, during the Roman period, Jesus came and the great defeat of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. under the rulership of the Romans. But when Jesus came, he established a kingdom, the kingdom that Daniel was looking forward to, a kingdom that would not fail and would extend throughout the whole earth. And so Daniel is telling his readers here in this last chapter to hold on to their hope that despite the troubles and the difficulties that are coming on the people of God, God's kingdom will not fail. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.